0: Area 941 podcasts are produced and distributed by community-powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org.
1: This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast. I'm Richard Walensky. And we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA Pacifica Radio. Novelist, screenwriter, and director Michael Crichton died in 2008 at the age of 66. In 1990, Michael Crichton was approaching the height of his fame. His best-selling novels included The Andromeda Strain, Eaters of the Dead, Terminal Man, Congo, Sphere, and The Great Train Robbery. He'd written and directed the films Westworld and Looker, as well as several other movies. On December fifth, 1990, he came to the KPFA studios to sit down with Richard A. Lupoff and me to discuss his entire career and his latest novel the just published, Jurassic Park. You started out as a doctor at Harvard and then was at the Salk Institute? Yes, I have a past. My
2: experience in all this is that I began with the intention of being a physician and paid my way through medical school writing paperback thrillers. And partway through that process, it was really sort of equally balanced. I found that I really liked the activity of writing the books and I really didn't like the activity of being a doctor. So I kind of jumped horses in midstream.
1: Those were books written under the name of John Lang. John Lang. And they were thrillers, Right. Correct sort of James
2: Bond kinds of books. Uh,
1: and one thing I read, it said that you were inspired by the Len Dayton's The Ipcrest File. Yes. A traveling fellowship, and I was abroad
2: between my senior year in college and my first year in medical school, and it was during that year that The Ipcrest File was, I think The Ipcrest File was published that year, or else the second one in the series was published, and The Ipcrest File came out in paper. And I, I had not seen this um, work at all, Len Dayton's work. He actually wrote a cooking strip, a sort of comic, illustrated cooking column in one of the papers, I think, The Observer. And so he was a model in a couple of ways. He had a very detailed uh, surface on what he wrote, which I was very attracted to, and he was also somebody who had made a switch from something else, and had done it, apparently, very easily. Why did you choose the name John Lang? John is my first name, actually, and Lang... I chose because I thought these sort of James Bond stories were fairy tales for adults, and I I associated fairy tales with the name of Andrew Lang, and so I used Lang and kept adding an e. Did you just send out a manuscript over the transom for your first? Kind of, yeah. First manuscript I did was rejected everywhere, and then I sent the second one to Doubleday. You know, Doubleday was the publisher is, that I knew the name of, and. They said that it was a little too racy for them and that they wouldn't publish it, but they would send it to Signet, and they, which was very nice of them. And they sent it to Signet, and Signet said they would buy it.
1: Now, your career took off uh, in 1969 with The Andromeda Strain, which you wrote under your own name. It's a medical thriller uh-huh. about a uh, an illness. What brought you to writing it? What brought you to using your own name? I was writing these paperbacks under actually a couple of names,
2: And they were getting more and more attention. One of the books I did under the name of Jeffrey Hudson was called A Case of Need, and it was published in hardcover. It was set at the Harvard Medical School, and there were lots of details. A sort of insider must have known about the medical school, and there was a lot of talk at Harvard about who might have written this book. And I uh, joined in enthusiastically the conversations, <laughs> wondering who this guy might be. You know? Did you have any good candidates? <laughs> oh, no, well, I, what we'd, he was um, identified as a medical researcher now living in London, because I thought the best way to handle it was to put him abroad so people didn't try and track him down. But eventually that book was nominated for an Edgar, and then it won, and they wanted somebody to go and accept the prize. And I, I, I you know, was reluctant to go, but did go finally, and with a lot of concern that I would be discovered and unmasked as the, um, the person who knew so much about the Harvard Medical School. And my life was getting increasingly sort of schizophrenic in this way. It was getting to be a harder and harder secret to keep that I, that I was writing books while I was going to school. And then it was sold in the movies, and they wanted me to fly out to Hollywood, and you know, and I'd sort of take off my white lab coat from the hospital and get it in limousines, and it was, it was very odd. And in the context of a decision to quit, which I made in my third year, arose then the possibility that I might as well start writing under my own name. And what I intended to do was to to do a large nonfiction book about hospitals and how they worked, and particularly teaching hospitals, because that was of interest to me. So I made a contract with a new publisher for me, Knopf. And that was going to start after I finished medical school, and I thought, well, Gee, you know, it's, I've got this year or so, and I, I don't really know how my working relationship will be, and I would like it to be you know, to, to be already in existence when I start working on this hospital book. So maybe it would be good to get the relationship going with some other thing first. And I called them up and said, maybe they'd like to do another book first, some kind of little book. And they said, okay, did, did I have anything? And I said, yeah, I had this manuscript that I've been working on off and on that was sort of about a plague from outer space and they said, Well, they, they didn't really publish books like that, at Knopf. I mean, didn't I know that Knopf was the publisher of Albert Camus? And I said, Yes, and I also knew that Knopf was the publisher of Raymond Chandler and <laughs> So they took a look at it and decided that if I worked on it a lot they'd publish it. I had this arrangement to do a a book this a no, little novel in in anticipation of the start of serious work on the hospital book and the novel was worked on you know intermittently over a period of about a year and a half with my then editor bob gottlieb and was they finally agreed to publish it around christmas time of 68 i was just exhausted from the work and he called me up and he said you've done a good job it's a good first novel you should be very pleased Prepare yourself. We'll sell two to four thousand copies, but um, and I don't know what kind of reviews it'll get. But you should be satisfied that you've done a good job. And that was the last I heard until I got started getting some very strange phone calls. And the book just had this very large and exciting public reception. And in the course of that, uh, somehow the we all imagined to be the more important book, the hospital book, which was five patients, got kind of neglected.
0: Andromeda Strain being the story, uh, as you say, of a plague from space, were you familiar with earlier works on the same theme, or, or was this just a, a an accidental reinvention? I'm thinking most notably of a book by an author named George O. Smith that was originally published as Highways in Hiding, and later reissued, specifically uh, retitled Plague from Space.
2: Hmm. No, I don't know that book. I know that Harry Harrison did a book mm-hmm. uh, that came out. I saw it in paperback just about the time I was finishing my manuscript, and it put me in a panic. I remember vividly the day that I saw the, the book on the rack. But no, I wasn't knowledgeable at all. To the extent that I was aware of
1: antecedents, it was uh, I thought I was doing uh, The War of the Worlds. Moving on to Hollywood, somewhere along the line came, West, I guess Westworld was the first?
2: Westworld was the first movie, yeah. I went to the Salk Institute as a sort of halfway house, uh, leaving academia. And it was actually at the Salk Institute that I wrote Five Patients. And during the time that I was there, um, Jacob Bronowski was still alive and was in residence. One of the ideas that Salk had for the Institute was to do a a program in what he called science and public affairs. And it it had to do with discussing scientific issues in mass media and uh, and disseminating scientific ideas to a broader audience. So we would sit around, we'd have meetings and sit around and talk about, you know, a TV special here or a, or a series there. Or something. I mean, in fact, Bernofsky went off then and did a very distinguished series, The Descent of Man. But prior to that time, we were all a group of people from essentially entirely academic backgrounds discussing what would be good and what would be bad, and And I began to have a really uh, sense of unreality about all this because I thought, well, you know, it's fine for us to discuss. It was, what what are the networks going to do? What are the, you know, what is public television going to do? What will work? What will the visual form tolerate and what won't it? And none of us had any experience in that. We were just basically full of it. And so uh, I decided to leave and get some hands-on experience. I mean, I thought that was important for what I wanted to do, and it coincided with the um, start of filming of the movie version of The Andromeda Strain. So I thought, well, there's a movie going in Hollywood. It was a pretty big picture for its day, and um, I can go up there and see that. So I went up and watched the filming and tried to learn something about how movies were made and eventually directed for the first time.
0: You had previously done some TV work, though.
2: It was based on a book that I had written called uh, Binary, and uh, it was the first directing job I ever had in the mysterious ways that Hollywood works. I couldn't get a job directing, and then I did this movie of the week, and after that I could, even though I think if the movie of the week didn't turn out very well, I mean, the people who said I didn't know how to direct were right. <laughs> <laughs>
0: but if, by your own statement, you did a bad job on Pursuit, this led you to a very substantial and quite successful career as a director.
2: Yes, I learned what I didn't know. And so that was terrific, and Westworld turned out very well.
0: Westworld looks
1: like it was a lot of fun to make, was it?
2: Well, I found it just terrifying and exhausting. I mean, we shot the picture in slightly under six weeks, and we had an unbelievable— I think we had a total production schedule of six months. We started shooting in February, and the picture had to be out in August. And everyone said we couldn't do it, and then we wouldn't make the dates. And there was a lot of feeling that, the, that even if we did, it wasn't going to be a very good movie. It was tremendously low budget, even for its day. And uh, uh, turned out well.
1: You went on to direct Coma, Great Train Robbery, and Looker. I did a movie called Runaway in 85
2: with Tom Selleck and another movie called Physical Evidence in 87 that I only
1: directed. That was Burt Reynolds. That was Burt Reynolds.
0: In the uh, 70s and 80s, it seems to me you did a a remarkable number of incredibly different things. Uh, A book uh, that that you and your brother Michael did under the curious joint pseudonym of Michael Douglas, Mm -hmm. Dealing, or the Berkeley to Boston 40 Brick Lost Bug Blues, 1971. Of course, the perfect 1971 title. Perfect. But then in contrast, what we have six years later a book on Jasper Johns and uh, another half dozen years go by and you do a book called electronic life how to think about computers somebody's referred to
2: this kind of activity as cud chewing behavior the reason is that if you're a cow which is not you know not not a very bright animal you eat a clump of grass and then you see next to it another clump of grass so you go and eat that and then next to that is another clump of grass so you eat that clump of grass and Eventually, by this process of, of incremental change, you find that you've, the cow has moved completely across the field to a whole new position. But the cow has no sense of great change. It's just going from clump to clump. And that's my sense about how, how things have worked.
0: Let's talk about dealing. Was this a hippie novel, a dope novel, a psychedelic? Yeah, it was an anti-dope novel, actually.
2: And uh, the movie was made by a production team that had just discovered how great drugs were. I think it's fair to say that the authors wrote the book because they had just discovered how great drugs were not. So there was a substantial difference in perception about that.
0: Yeah, it was
2: a a disillusioned book, Mm -hmm. is
0: how I think about it. Electronic Life, How to Think About Computers, 1983. It was aimed at people who were afraid to
2: use computers at that time. And, uh, what, that's about a year after the IBM PCs came out? Is that right? What had happened was that I had, I'd started a software company <laughs> and was supervising programmers, and I was just really living and breathing computers of all kinds. I was doing a computer game. I was very excited about all this stuff and very impatient with all the
1: sympathetic toward people who are having trouble getting started with computers. Before Jurassic Park, You did a book called Travels. Apparently, you spent a number of years wandering around, and uh, this is about, uh, I may be wrong here, but the information I have is that it was about laying on of hands, using uh, healing energy, uh, and various things you learned in your travels. Uh, How does that relate to your earlier work in medical school? And also, do you see that this changes your entire viewpoint, the travels changed your viewpoint towards, say, the rat race of Hollywood, and the kind of work you were doing?
2: Well, Travels was actually written in three parts. It was a kind of autobiographical book. The first section had to do with some of the things we've talked about so far, as leaving medicine and going to California. And then there was a section that just was experiences traveling, which has been a, an interest of mine. I don't know. that it's, it's it's neither work nor recreation, so I guess it's an interest. It's been an interest of mine for a long time, and I've really found it very uh, beneficial to go to, to strange places. So I talked a lot about g- going in the jungles of Malaysia and climbing Kilimanjaro and things like that. And then the third part had to do with these with With an interest in what an area that i don't I've never known a good label for paranormal or whatever you want to call that all that stuff e s p auras psychic phenomena you know I talked about it a lot at the time, as far as I can tell is not in its tone and in, in its response it's it's a little bit like abortion, you know. You can have conversations till the cows come home. Um, I don't know that you can convince anybody of anything one way or the other. In terms of whether or not it changed my sense of anything, it certainly didn't have anything to do with my experience of Hollywood because I was already pretty uncoupled from that. I've, I've never really been a Hollywood person, mostly because I think that th- this is an old idea, but I mean, Hollywood, I mean, real Hollywood is about power, and I've never had an interest in that. I've, I've had a lot of interest in making movies. But the game, the game that the people who are there are playing is a game about power. That's something else. So I don't want to play that.
1: This brings us all to your latest novel, Jurassic Park. Before we went on the air, you mentioned that you had a lot of trouble writing this book. Why? Boy,
2: I don't know. I mean, Richard, if I knew that, I wouldn't have had the trouble. <laughs> <laughs> but all I can say is that some of them are easy and some of them are hard, and I never know. Andromeda Strain was brutal. Terminal Man was brutal. Great Train Robbery was easy. Eaters of the Dead was easy. Congo was very tough. Sphere was very easy. Travels was in the middle. And Jurassic Park was the most difficult of all.
1: You did a, quite a bit of research on this, using flies in amber. I don't know that I know very much about it, but there's a, there are
2: two people, and I believe they're both in Berkeley, George Polinar and Roberta Hess, who started something called, I think, the Extinct DNA Research Society or something. I don't know exactly the name of the group. And it's um, their idea uh, that you might be able to obtain DNA from prior time periods by removing it from insects and amber. And my understanding is that they have undertaken to try this and have had some some success in obtaining protein material. I don't know that it's what they've obtained is DNA.
0: There is a great deal of scientific underpinning in Jurassic Park. Do you really believe that it would be possible to reconstitute an extinct creature by uh, recovering uh, a sample of its DNA and and analyzing that?
2: I mean, absolutely it's possible. Is it probable? (laughs) I mean, I don't worry. I mean, I think there's a lot of things that we can worry about, and and dinosaurs is not one of them, you know. Um, do you mean is it possible to to bring back any extinct animal? Absolutely, sure. Why not? I mean, in some basic way, what I'm doing is following the conversations of scientists. So in the early 80s, what happened was that there was a new perception of the function of zoos. It began to become clear that every wild animal in the world was going to become extinct, except for animals that were Either in zoos or in specially set aside game parks that would be patrolled and protected, and that that was going to be the future, of, um, you know, life on this planet except for us. And and the zoos therefore had a new function. I mean, it wasn't merely to display animals taken out of their natural habitat. Their natural habitat was vanishing, and these animals were going to be preserved. the zoos were becoming a Noah's Ark, and and One of the functions that was subsumed under that was that they were starting to stockpile genetic material in order to prevent problems of inbreeding with the animals that they could could breed and so on. And since zoos were now starting to have this genetic um, side to their work, people were starting to say, well, not only are they going to save animals that are already saved them from extinction, maybe they'll bring a few back that are already extinct. And um, one of the prime candidates was an animal called the quagga, which became extinct in the 1880s. And it is like a zebra. It's an African Mm -hmm. animal, horse-like animal. And I guess there's enough um, material around, hides and so on, that, that people thought that they might be able to get the DNA. And I suppose the thought was that they could initially make a sort of half quagga, half zebra. By impregnating a, um, a zebra and letting the, the animal grow inside a, a zebra uterus, I, I guess that was the thought. So then, then there was a speculation—the way scientific articles often end—with a little speculation of wh- where might such a trend lead. I suppose it might lead to uh, recreating a dinosaur. So I mean, I'm just sitting there reading this stuff. I mean, <laughs> I'm not.
1: You jumped at it, and Jurassic Park is about a what would be an amusement park involving the reconstituted dinosaurs, or at least mostly reconstituted dinosaurs. Two questions come up. Uh, one concerns dinosaurs. The other concerns Jurassic Park itself. When reading the book, I kept thinking Westworld, only with dinosaurs, mm-hmm. not computers and robots. Well, I think there are two things about that. One is, in
2: trying to think it through, I mean, there's a reality level that, that I'm obliged to deal with. If the book is to have any believability at all, the first person has to believe it is me. And if I imagined, okay, that there are, that scientists do have the capability to extract the DNA and recreate the animal, let's just say that they do. They, I mean, they don't now, but let's suppose it's, it's in the future or it's available. Who's going to do it? I mean, no university is going to do it. It doesn't matter. I mean, it's not a research project of any importance. Um, And it's tremendously, tremendously expensive. So where would the hundreds of millions of dollars needed to make a dinosaur come from? And the only thing I could think of was from entertainment, broadly speaking. Why would people want to do it as entertainment? The only thing I could think of was they do it as a tourist attraction. Well, if it was a tourist attraction, how, how would they arrange it? Well, they'd make a kind of zoo. That would be nice, and you could go there. And Okay, where would they make it? Well, not in America. It would be too much restriction and difficulty, so they'd put it someplace else. How would it be arranged? Well, I mean, now I've got an island off the coast of Rican, and I'm, I just followed it through in that way. To the extent that it reflected Westworld, I guess I had two feelings about it. One thing is, Something that I think is inevitable and, and is worth noticing, which is a, a, a fantasy of this kind 20 years ago would involve machinery and now c- very well can involve um, the notion of uh, specifically created life forms. That's a change, and it's a sort of disturbing one. And the second thing is, I don't know. I mean, it's it's okay. It reflects the previous idea.
0: Do you see this as as a mi- misapplication of technology and resources? Don't you think we've got our priorities wrong in this country? I do.
1: The dinosaurs themselves are fascinating, and particularly thinking of two of them, the scavenger. Who, the compies. Yeah. The other are those six-foot-tall ones that menace most of the characters. Or the raptors. These, I would gather, were real dinosaurs. Oh, sure. They're all real dinosaurs. What about the idea of the way they move, the quick bobbing of the head, looking back and forth, and not being able to see anyone unless that person was moving?
2: Well, that's all taken from either existing research or uh, by analogy from other species. You know, one of the problems that we face as anomalous is that people who like dinosaurs like them a lot and know a lot about them. So we don't want to fool around and give them traits that, that they shouldn't really have. And I felt it was important to not make up new dinosaurs or, or cheat on them too much. The second thing is that it's, it's very tempting... Even if you're going to say, I'm going to make them as accurate as I know how, uh, nevertheless, the soft tissues of these animals are gone. They have, you know, we don't really know what they look like. We don't really know what their coloration was, and we don't really know what their behavior was. So that's all free for me to make up. And in the course of making that up, it's very convenient or attractive to make up an animal that serves your plot devices. And I think a reader can smell that. They can smell that you've sort of plugged a a hole in a way with a cork that you've manufactured to just fit the hole that you've made. And I didn't want to have that feeling. So again, I tried to model them on something else and to give them qualities. And I, and I did use birds. You know, I watched a lot of animal films. And, and the vision stuff about being unable to see things when they don't move is taken from a fairly well, now fairly well-known work by Jerry Leffin when he was at MIT on the visual system of frogs. Uh, so it's the amphibian visual systems, and and that kind of thing I thought was necessary in order not to just make up any old thing that you wanted to
0: have. You portray your your dinosaurs as pretty bright creatures. How bright do you believe they actually were? And secondly, uh, which of course is wildly speculative, but if whatever disaster it is that that uh, wiped the dinosaurs out had not occurred would they conceivably have evolved full intelligence and civilization?
2: How bright they are is a matter of complete speculation. But the thing that I always find, there are a few things that we don't usually kind of get clear about dinosaurs. One is that this is all a long time ago. You know, because, I mean, we think, I don't know what, the fall of the Roman Empire was a long time ago. That was nothing, nothing. You know, we're talking about hundreds of millions of years. And... We're talking about the dominance of the entire planet by a life form that's essentially vanished. Some people look at a crocodile and say, that's what's left of a dinosaur. It's nonsense. A crocodile is a crocodile. It's a very poor example of what we're talking about. Some people look at, say, an ostrich and say, that's what dinosaurs used to be like. I don't really think so. It's gone. This organization of life is gone. And if you... Think now about how the great, astounding variety of mammalian life that's on this planet now, you know. But, I mean, there's a great diversity of behavior and appearance and lifestyle, and, and that kind of an extraordinary variety is something we don't really see in dinosaurs. You know, when I look at most murals in, in museums, it really kind of looks like the same animal in different shapes. You know, this is a big one, this is a little one, but it's the same kind of an animal. And I think that's almost certainly not the the way it was. So that diversity is hard for us to imagine because we only know of a certain number of species, 300 or something like that. We don't know. I mean, there are evidently many, many more species than that. And over an extraordinary period of time, I mean, 180 million years or something like that.
0: Which brings us back to the question of their intelligence as portrayed in Jurassic Park. In fact, I found the dinosaurs as you portrayed them so intriguing. I was, I, you know, was almost rewriting the book in my own mind and saying, well, you just, just dump Henry Wu and the rest of these people and who cares? Just put those dinosaurs on stage.
2: At one time, I thought I had made a story in which the people were more interesting than the dinosaurs, and and um, that didn't work at all, you know, because, I mean, when dinosaurs are around, it's hard to really look at anything else. I mean, I gave them chimp intelligence, which, yeah, I mean, depending on how you look at it, I mean, I think some people would say, oh, that's a lot of intelligence for a dinosaur. But, you know, it's not really. I mean, chimp brain case isn't very large. I don't know what it is for, cc's or something. And I don't see any reason to think if we imagine that dinosaurs are very bird like in their behavior a lot of birds have fairly complex kinds of behaviors there's a whole new interest now in parrots and the kinds of thinking that's going on for example where people are really starting to feel like we can't do experimentations on monkeys and apes that they're that they're a little too that they have more awareness than we previously imagined that 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 sort of revolution in thought is now taking place with, with certain bird researchers who are basically saying, you know, the basic way that we treat parrots in captivity is unbelievably cruel. I mean, these animals, these are bright animals. You give the dinosaur the intelligence of a parrot, which is all I would ask for the purposes of this book, then I'm there, you know? You also have species that have feathers? Well, I actually try to keep the feathers off. The bird-like qualities of these animals um, has raised the question of whether, for example, a velociraptor would have some feathers or be partially feathered or what the transition between between dinosaurs and birds was actually like and how how it occurred. And Anyway, some illustrators have drawn raptors with feathers, and it makes them look a little bit like bedraggled Indians, you know, with one or two feathers sticking up. And, and I, I just didn't like it visually, so I, it's one of the decisions that
0: I felt free to make. Do you accept the warm-blooded model?
2: Essentially, yes. I mean, I think with certain uh, very vociferous holdouts, the, the majority of the field has moved in that direction.
1: You also spend time on the chaos theory. I guess I,
2: I put a lot of the information in just because during the time I was writing the book, I kept running into friends of mine who said, do you understand this chaos stuff? I mean, I'm trying to read these books and I don't get it. And I thought, well, I might just put in a little primer, um, in a, in a sort of simple way about chaos. And, and so that was one reason why it's in the book. Another reason, of course, is that I think it's, chaos is a, is a good example of one of the emerging areas where we're starting to sense limitations in science, and those limitations are important and not very widely discussed. I think the easiest way to discuss it is to is to talk historically. Physics has had a lot of success historically in dealing with certain kinds of problems uh, as represented in certain kinds of equations. And th- those are what are called linear equations, and they describe, for example, the orbits of the planets around the sun and spacecraft going to the moon. Certain kinds of regular behavior which has early on, hundreds of years ago, gotten a handle on mathematics, works for it, and it's all fine. There's another kind of phenomenon in the real world, which is, I guess, represented by, you know, every time you flush a toilet or um, run water in the basin, um, turbulence, movement of liquids, uh, air flowing over an airplane wing. Turbulence is an example of nonlinear and it's very difficult to understand. that mathematics are hard. The equations are difficult to solve without so much simplification that it begins to seem like you're not, no longer describing the real phenomena. There is now a theory which deals with nonlinear phenomena, which is called chaos theory. And it, it, it arose um, in the 60s. It arose with computers. It's, it is a, a, a phenomenon made possible by, by the advent of individually programmable desktop computers and is uh, i think in inseparable from the from that technology the first indications of its existence came from some simple computer models of of weather by a man named Lorenz who who basically showed that you could start the model that he had made the computer model of weather with the same initial conditions and the model would not behave the same way twice the very tiny variations in starting conditions led to very dramatically different outcomes. And it was from that that people began to investigate the regularities and the lack of regularities in all this phenomenon. And it's now a tremendously large field. It's a kind of a revolution in science. And my interest in it has been in the definition of limits. That's why I had a focus on it, because it, it seems to me that we live in a society where... Um, Both the benefits and the um, undesirable side effects of science are very prominent. And in in trying to, to the extent that it's possible, to keep what's good and get rid of what's bad, it seems important to know what science can and can't do. On a sort of practical level, we're starting to have some experience, and it seems to me important to know on a theoretical level. I mean, and for example, I mean, there's been, since World War II, there's been a tremendous... Expenditure and focus on weather forecasting, which chaos theory now assures us is a complete waste of time. Jurassic Park,
0: there is going to be a motion picture.
2: There is. It's a very exciting prospect. It's a daunting undertaking. Um, Stephen's idea is to make full size mechanical animals for all the major creatures. So we're talking about a mechanical animal, you know, a mechanical Tyrannosaurus Rex, two stories high, that can move. Sixty miles an hour. That's the plan. You don't think he could grow one from some DNA instead of that? <laughs> no, he better? Right. And <laughs> it, if he if he
1: makes them too robotic, we'll have Westworld all over again with Spielberg.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting issue of what the technology can deliver, but that's the expectation. This is a gigantic, gigantic project that's going to take
1: years. Have you begun work on another novel?
2: Yeah, I have. It's actually uh, it's actually due very soon, so so I'm I'm working hard on it
1: and enjoying it a lot because it's completely in it. In another area. It's America and Japan. Michael Crichton's next book, set in Japan, was the best-selling Rising Sun. Later novels included Disclosure, The Lost World, a sequel to Jurassic Park, Airframe, Timeline, Prey, and State of Fear. Jurassic Park, of course, directed by Steven Spielberg, became one of the most successful films of all time, Crichton became enamored of chaos theory, scorning weather prediction. This most likely was behind the support of climate change denial during the last decade of his life. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com. You can listen to other interviews, either as Radio Walensky podcasts or in the archives pages of bookwaves.com. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast.